0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Haji Zadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm very really honor- honored to be speaking with Professor uh, Gregor Gell, uh, who has written a wonderful book about Mick Lynch. Uh, the book was published by, uh, by Manchester University Press this month and uh, we're really glad to have Professor Gregor Gal with us. Professor Gregor Gall is a visiting Professor of Industrial Relations at the University of Leeds. The book is called Mick Lynch, The Making of a Working Class Hero, published by Manchester University Press. Gregor, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: Um, before we start talking uh, about the book, can you please briefly introduce yourself, talk about your field of expertise, and uh, more importantly, tell us why you decided to write, keep, write a book about Mick Lynch? I've,
1: I've been a, an industrial relations academic for over 30 years now um, and in that time uh, the level of strikes has never been as high in Britain as it has been over the last couple of years. Um, so this was an opportune time to um, look at the issues uh, through the prism of Mick Lynch. Um, in the Late June of 2022, Mick Lynch went from being virtually unknown to the, the wider public to being um, extremely well known, if not, uh, as, as I say in the book, um, called by many to be a working class hero. And that um, that transition was almost overnight. It took place as a result of three interviews um, uh, on big television channels in Britain. One was with Piers Morgan, who many people might well know. Uh, another was one was on GMTV, Good Morning uh, Television, with Richard Madeley. And a third was on Sky News with uh, an interviewer called Kay Burley. And in those interviews, um, he uh, responded in such a robust and articulate and cleverly that he put down those interviewers who had tried to put him down as a sort of um upstart uh and somebody who you know really shouldn't be doing what he was doing in terms of leading a strike or defending the strike on the sort of national airwaves so it's it's not often in your career say you know it's been 30 years in in the um uh, since i began that such an opportunity arises to examine what's going on um not obviously right as it's going on, because by the time you do the research and write the book and it comes out, there's always is going to be a bit of a delay. But to try and catch the zeitgeist of this new development in terms of, you know, the cost of living crisis, uh, workers and unions uh, for the first time in a generation really starting to stand up and fight back. So um, that, that was an opportunity. The motivation is that, as I say, I'm an industrialist academic professor um, for many years. And, uh, if you are uh, on the political left, as I am, uh, and you're also an academic, you also want the opportunity to try to speak to people outside the academy, um, to be, if you like, a public intellectual uh, and let others know in a kind of less academic um, manner, if you like, in terms of the writing, about uh, how analysis of power, of the state, of capital, of capitalism can, Um, be interesting and worthwhile for them to read.
2: Yeah, and and I have several questions on that, which I'll ask you as we go through the interview. Uh, uh, The good thing about your book is that first you come up with a theoretical framework, a definition. As you mentioned, he's become known as a working-class hero. So you come up with a framework, a definition of working-class hero. Can you please tell us what is the approach uh, that you take to talk about a working class hero? Who is a working class hero in, in, in the scope of your research?
1: Um, well, let me say, first of all, that um, it wasn't me, if you like, that came up with the term Mick Lynch being a working class hero. It was something that emerged organically um, by the very people who were watching those interviews and who were amazed and um, taken aback by how, how good he was. So what I picked up on was this perception that Mick Lynch is a working class hero. Now, in Britain, at any rate, and I'm sure this is true elsewhere, because of the decline of the radical left, of social democracy, of the unions, it's quite unusual for, if you like, ordinary people Mm. to remember a term such as working class hero, and then also start applying it to somebody who they'd seen on, um, on television. So... The reason why the book's called The Making of a Working Class Hero is to try to understand the process by which people use this term. And they did so in their thousands not millions. Certainly the, what I was able to document was many, many people using it. And I think would be right in assuming that many more did use it. It's just that they didn't do so publicly on Twitter or you know various other social media platforms. So it's about the the process by which a perception was developed, and it was given a, a nomenclature, a name, a term. Um, and if we go back in sort of time, recent time, um, if people are aware of the term working class hero, they might be aware of the song by John Lennon, which comes from the early 1970s. Then they might also be, again, in Britain in particular, they might be aware that it was given to a small number of union leaders, and probably the best known one, Back again in the time of the early 1970s was Arthur Scargill, who was not at that point the uh, general secretary, the leader of the National Union of Mine Workers. He subsequently became that. He led um in between 84 and 85 the biggest uh, strike in Britain since the general strike in 1926, and that was over the pit closure program. So by people using that term, they were opening up the issues to 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 see. Was Mick Lynch was right in calling him a working class hero? How did that process come about? And what would the outcomes be? And I suppose my when I started looking at the literature on um working class hero, I was quite amazed to find that it was never defined uh, in all the source material that I could get hold of, it was just somehow taken as being self-evident of what a working class hero was. As I say, I found that rather uh, unusual, to say the least. So I saw it as part of my job to lay out and elaborate a definition of a working class hero. And what I came up with, most obviously, this isn't rocket science, but the starting point must be that it is a person who represents the interests of the working class. Now, that's the kind of headline, if you like. When you start to dig underneath that, it obviously becomes a lot more complex. What is it meant to to represent something? Is it just to articulate something, as in to say workers shouldn't you know pay the cost of um, the, the the crisis of the, the cost of living um, uh, changes that are going on? They shouldn't pay the, for the crisis of capitalism. Is it just words, if you like, or is there more to it than that? Are there actions that lie behind those words that would be compatible with those words? So the prosecution of certain uh, mass collective struggles. And then there's the other issue is, does a working class hero have to be of the working class? Does that mean they have to have come originally from the working class? Uh, Does it mean they still have to be in the working class as in a member of that social class? Or can they be somebody else who is recognized by working class people primarily to be one of their heroes? And so we come across examples of footballers, pop stars, uh, other sportsmen and women who might have been called a working-class hero, largely because in those terms they were seen to be still willing to use their profile to say certain progressive, politically progressive things, even though they had long since left the working class in an objective sense. They had long since left that social class in terms of their material wealth, their ability to protect themselves from, uh, from the ravages of the free market so on. And in the case of Mick Lynch, um, it's clear to me that while he is emotionally and psychologically still very much connected to the working class, as you would expect in terms of what his aspirations are, culturally, the kind of things he likes as well, in objective terms, he is no longer a member of the working class, not just because he has a very large salary, um, which would be the salary of a senior manager, if you think about other organisations, but also because he um leads and is effectively is like the chief executive of an organization which has 80,000 members has a turnover through you know membership dues being paid in the millions has a property portfolio in the millions and also has stocks and shares um, worth over 25 million now I don't say any of that to denigrate Mick Lynch the the book is a celebration of Mick Lynch but also a critique of him and what what he's done and what he says and how he's gone about things but on that point of me saying he is no longer objectively a member of the working class as I say that is in no way uh, an attempt to denigrate him Uh, it is merely as a social scientist looking at that situation now for many people that will be a contentious point but i do think it then shows um a rather superficial understanding of what it means to be working class or any kind of class analysis um and you don't have to be a marxist to have a class analysis you could be a vivid, um follower of uh, of Weber. um nonetheless you would have set um criteria which you would have to enforce and or apply if you like mm-hmm. in assessing where somebody's class location was mm-hmm. so just to recap i suppose i looked at the issues of process, how does somebody become to be called a, member, a working class hero and what are the outcomes? And I'll discuss the outcomes more with you in a moment, but the one final thing to say about the status of a hero is a hero is almost exclusively about somebody who is seen to be able to do things on behalf of others that they cannot do themselves. Now, in terms of working class consciousness and the union movement, that's an interesting uh, phenomenon phenomenon, rather, because most people on the left would say, um, we shouldn't have heroes. Um, Yes, we have leaders, but they must be accountable, we all must be leaders, this kind of um, often platitudes. And so for people in Britain to have identified Mick Lynch as a working class hero, says that on the one hand, they're more open to the ideas that he's espousing, which are really ideas of social democracy rather than socialism, but also that they, at this point in time, even if they were to go on strike, do not feel they are able to prosecute their interests in a way that they might wish to, that is to say, to do so in a through mass struggle which is successful. And therefore, they look to somebody like Mick Lynch to do things that they cannot do, because he has mm-hmm. uh, access to the national media, he uh, has the um, ability to lead a, a you know a powerful union, and also, um, he has, if you like, the gift of the gap. He's an articulate uh, operator, and many of them may not be able to do that. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm. Uh, again, you have raised a lot of important points. We, we do talk about some of the criticism that maybe you have of, of Mick Lynch. Uh, but but when I read the book, as a matter of fact, I expected to read a book which is all you know, applauding Mick Lynch. So I do see that in the book, but you also have some fair criticism of him as well, which I guess provides a perfectly balanced uh, view towards him and, and his, his legacy. Uh, I'm also interested to know more about the that process of becoming a working class hero that you talked about. So you talk about this, uh, you have this schemata, persona, politics, period, and potential power. Um, I would appreciate if you could talk about the schemata you use and also later on go on to talk about some because the time was perfect for him to become a working- class hero or to become known as a working- class hero because of the socio-economic conditions that uh in England the cost of living uh, dissatisfaction with Tories and also his performance in the media we just which you just mentioned it would be great if we could talk about these two things this schemata and also that socioeconomic condition in England that gave him that, yeah. that paved the way for his becoming a hero
1: so when i first um used the evidence of other people identifying mick lynch as a working class hero i also asked the counterfactual question why was it not others why just mick lynch and why nobody else and i used that as a way to try and open up what is it that's specific about mick lynch in terms of him as an individual uh him as a union leader him and his particular union him and the political economic context in which he finds himself and that's why I use these four words beginning with P, uh, persona, um, politics, power, and period. So let me just look at the first one, the persona. Now, Mick Lynch is actually um, fairly sort of uh, shy person. So what people see and hear of Mick Lynch is kind of certain extrapolation of a particular bit of his personality. So it's not all of Mick Lynch, it's a particular aspect. And that's, uh, you know, that's quite a common phenomenon that uh, people will, um, if you like, exaggerate or develop certain parts of their personality to develop a persona, which they believe will be effective in whatever, you know, public uh, life or public job they're doing. So Mick Lynch, um, uh, in terms of how we've seen him on the television, on the radio, uh, on the picket line, all these kind of things, um, he's very strong, he's very forthright, he's very frank. He's often sardonic, he's often sarcastic, um, and he is the kind of person who um, will always respond in very robust terms to anything that, that is put to him. The, the one thing that uh, he he does, which many others don't have, is an ability, if he gets angry, uh, he doesn't show it, and he certainly never stormed off um, from an interview, which I think would, you know, be a gift to uh, his political opponents, so... When he when he speaks, he's always very calm, he's always very measured. and I think that's really important because it's showing that um, it's a bit like a kind of like the sucker punch. He, he he takes it in, takes a step back but doesn't isn't affected by it. And um, that's clearly what some of his uh, the people that were interviewing him wanted to do, and they must have been very, very annoyed and aggrieved that um, he didn't react in that way. And they kept provoking him and provoking him and provoking him, particularly uh, on the interview from Piers Morgan, which, just to remind people, uh, as, as Mick Lynch himself said, it was a bizarre line of questioning because it started off by saying, Was Mick Lynch the Hood, uh, a character from Thunderbirds? And if uh, Mick Lynch was the Hood, and this is because there was an avatar of the Hood on Mick Lynch's Facebook, then Uh, If if he was trying to be the Hood, then the Hood was a mastermind, you know, world criminal, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, at that point, many people might have just sworn or walked off set. But Mick Lynch um, kept his cool, kept his calm. And not only did he answer, but he turned it back on uh, on Piers Morgan. So that's something of his persona. Now, when he's operating within within the union, outside of the public gaze, um, from what I was able to detect from conducting interviews, uh, there's a slightly different side um, emerges to him. That is one where he is quite domineering, uh, if not also quite authoritarian at times. But, you know, most of us can only see the the public side. Now, in terms of the politics, again, Mick Lynch has quite a, I feel like, an idiosyncratic view of the world. I don't mean it's um, weird and and, um, put that in negative terms, but he is social democrat and not a socialist and what i mean by that is that he his political ambition is to see a form of capitalism where there's a considerable regulation of the of the relationship between labor workers and capital employers and capitalism itself now just to put it in very simple terms a socialist is somebody who wishes to see the abolition of capitalism mick lynch doesn't want to see that in fact in some of his interviews, he made it clear that in terms of where his sympathies lie uh, or lay, lay for the October Russian Revolution, it was with Julius Martov and not with Lenin and Trotsky. So that was you know, part and parcel of um, what his worldview is, what his perspective is. And he's, he's uh, somebody who is well-read. He went to the London School of Economics in the late 1980s. So this is not something that he has just, you know, got some superficial understanding of. He has an understanding of history. He's chosen to um, draw certain conclusions from it. Those are, whether one likes them or not, they are robust and they are uh, worked out. So, you know, that he has to be given credit for that. So his politics are, are there. And I'll, again, I can talk about what that means in terms of his views of the Sir Starmer-led Labour Party at the moment. But he's a social democrat, not a socialist. It makes him radical um, because in Britain, as in elsewhere, neoliberalism has dominated the political agenda for the last 40-odd years, so he sticks out. Um, he is not somebody who is going to um, advocate a kind of partnership with employers. Um, he's not somebody who's a moderate. He's more, if you like, a militant. Excuse me, but there are lim- limits to that. Excuse me, Well, I will just take the... Now, in terms of the, um, the period, I've just mentioned the term neoliberalism, which is shorthand, um, as most of us would use it, for the rolling back of the state, the opening up of markets where they maybe didn't previously exist. slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Privatization, contracting out, all that kind of thing. Um, So the period that we're in is one where, despite um, the great financial crisis of the early, or the late um, 2000, uh, you know, beginning of the new millennium, 2008, 2009, despite that, despite the pandemic, which showed um, governments that were neoliberal using massive state uh, intervention and expenditure to uh, stabilise the capitalist uh, economies. Despite all that, neoliberalism, to my mind, is still the dominant ideology that um, runs most of the world and is still, unfortunately, in my mind, pretty much as strong as it ever was, um, even if particular parties suffer uh, electoral defeats, as the Conservative Party in Britain looks like it will. If that is the case in Britain, Uh, the Conservative government is going to be replaced by a Labour government, which, led by Keir Starmer, is a a kind of iteration of of Tony Blair and New Labour. So not a return to old Labour, not a return to social democracy. So those are the conditions that that Mick Lynch's and the RMT, the union he leads, are operating in. Uh, Part of the detail of that is that unions are essentially only half as strong as they used to be in union membership compared to 1979. The level of strikes prior to 2022, uh, hit its lowest level since records began. um, Some of those records began in the 1890s. So, you know, well over 100 years, it's lowest level strike action. So that's all part of the context. And I think if one casts um, our minds back to the time when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, you could see that although on the one hand, the neoliberal agenda uh, was still... Uh, dominant if not still in the ascendancy there was at the same time a kind of undercurrent of of palpable dissatisfaction mass dissatisfaction with it and its outcomes in terms of rising to social inequality and so on and that's why corbyn was um, so popular people hoped that he would be able to turn back the tide of neoliberalism that obviously wasn't the case he was essentially done in by not only the tories and the media but done in by The right wing in his own party. So that's that's all about the the period that I try to deal with and how Mick Lynch fits into that. Does Mick Lynch begin to change that situation? And the last aspect, the other P, is the potential power of his members. Um, Most people would probably think that rail workers in Britain uh, and probably in other countries around the world have a lot of power. They certainly have the power to disrupt and what I mean by that is the power to, to go and strike. Um, pretty much the whole rail network comes to a halt. Um, there are few alternatives to using rail that um, have such a, you know, an immediate bearing on things. So, for example, if the railway network is shut down, um, cars, buses, planes are unable to take up the slack um, uh, very easily. So that does mean the power to disrupt is quite uh, in evidence. But um, looking back at the history of um, strikes on the railways in Britain, at any rate, I can't speak about other countries, but in Britain, that power to disrupt did not necessarily bring about power over, power over being power over the bargaining opponent, the employer or the government. And so that's why I call it potential power rather than, if you like, actual power. And I think that analysis of the difference between power to disrupt and power over has very much been borne out by... or that framework that I deployed has been very much borne out by the um, the settlements, the two settlements and the two national rail strikes that that went on for 18 months to two years. One was with Network Rail, which is the uh, state-owned infrastructure company. It runs the tracks, um, you know, manages the stations, all that kind of thing. And the other uh, dispute was with the train operating companies, Those are private sector companies who have the franchise to run, say, rail services in the southeast of England uh, or in the north of England. And they are often owned by many uh, bigger companies, if you like, uh, companies which are um, located, their ownership is located outside of Britain. In some cases, ironically, a state-owned by the German um, rail company and by the Dutch rail company. So the, the settlements there were below inflation uh considerably below inflation and um uh in order to even to get that um the strikes that went on went on for sometimes like three weeks not three weeks solid but you know a day here a day there or two days here that make up in total three weeks and that represents three weeks lost wages there was no strike pay so you have a below inflation settlement and you have to pay to get it and that's not something that i think is a great outcome but but as i say the issues are explored in more detail in the book so that's the schemata as you call it the before the, the person or the persona the politics of that person period in which they're operating the political period in which they're operating and the potential power of their members the other question you asked about was essentially how did mick lynch end up being the general secretary of the rmt union uh at the time that the strikes began. I use in the book um, terms like baptism of fire several times. I mean, technically you can only have one baptism, but in my book it suited uh, the the analysis to have three of them. And also I use the term accidents of history. So if you start with, you know, those baptisms and accidents of history, Mick Lynch, is blacklisted out of the construction industry, the industry that he was working in as a young man. He therefore is unable to get employment because employers have this blacklist. And when when he applies for a job or is offered a job, they check him against this list. And the the the, the organization, the consulting association, as it was called, would say, No, don't employ him. So he doesn't get a job. So he has problems um, providing an income for his family. His wife uh, does work, she's a nurse, but there's only one income coming into the family and they have three children. Um, So he's forced by blacklisting to go and get a job elsewhere where there is no blacklist as such. And that is Eurostar, the company that runs the trains underneath the English Channel between um, uh, Britain and France. Having been a union activist, that's why he was blacklisted originally he starts to um, uh, become active in the RMT, the union that that, uh, organises amongst um, most of the staff in Eurostar. So that's the first, if you like, both a baptism of fire, the blacklisting, but also this accident of history that he's forced out of one industry into another by the actions of the employers. And then, as I say, he starts to become active and organises the workforce at Eurostar the next uh if you like accident of history is that bob crow who was the general secretary um the general secretary prior to mick lynch was uh, a, a man called mick cash prior to him it was bob crow who was seen as probably the best general secretary the rmt has ever had um, bob crow died at a very early age and um, he died on the 11th of march 2014. If Bob Crow hadn't had died, he was in his um, early 50s, if he hadn't had died, he could well have gone on and been the general secretary for another 10 years. And that would have, in terms of a kind of like succession, if you like, that would have meant it was unlikely that, that Mick Lynch would have ever ended up being general secretary. The other accident of history is that Mick Cash, pre- the successor to Bob Crow and the predecessor of Mick Lynch, he retires... Um, uh, or resigns there's a different uh views about it but essentially there's an internal faction fight within the union mick cash doesn't get his way and, and leaves and again if if that hadn't happened the space this opportunity for uh mick lynch to become general secretary wouldn't have opened up there are elections for all these posts it's not as though mick lynch is appointed he stands and fights for that post and wins and then you come to the, the Uh, the the kind of another baptism of fire, another accident of history, there is a cost of living crisis starts to develop um, in the early part of 2022. It starts to develop and comes to fruition and therefore it's Mick Lynch who is the General Secretary of the Rail Maritime Transport Union, the RMT, at the point that um, the cost of living crisis happens. And in addition to that general feature of the economy in britain within the rail industry itself there's also been a, a long-standing plan to reduce the numbers of people working in industry increase their productivity introduce flexible work um, practices and so on excuse me and therefore a general feature the cost of living crisis and a specific feature this modernization program in the rail industry come together mick lynch is the general secretary at the time when it comes to a head he's the one that um leads the opposition is compelled to leave the opposition because of his members. So there are a number of features um that you have to see kind of come into play or or put in train in order to understand why certain individual leads a certain union at a certain point in time with a certain outcome.
2: The, the the next question I have is is about his background. You did talk a little bit about his background, but I'm keen to know more about where that passion for for justice, and you know his involvement with unions came from when and why he joined uh, R RMT, and uh, even during his employment with armed uh, RMT, he there, there was this quick ascension, let's say, and rise to the top uh, top uh, uh, managerial orders of the organization. And you do call him a mover and a shaker uh, in that uh, organization. So I'm keen to know more about his background as well.
1: Um, I think the first thing to say about Mick Lynch is he comes from uh, an immigrant Irish background. His um, parents, um, one his mother moved from Armagh, which is in the north of Ireland, um, and his father moved from Cork, which is in the south of Ireland, the Republic of Ireland. They both moved to Britain during the Second World War um, because it was actually easier to get employment in London than it was um, back in their respective um, uh, places where they lived in the north and south of Ireland. So um, it's not uncommon for um, uh, people of an Irish background in Britain, of Irish descent, to have great um, psychological and cultural links with their uh, ancestry and their heritage. And that's certainly the case with Mick Lynch. Um, He doesn't hold a British passport. He holds an Irish passport. Um, he is very um, much enamoured with all things Irish in terms of sport in particular. And uh, one of his, uh, if not the political hero that he has, is a person called uh, James Connolly, who, although born in Edinburgh, uh, also is of Irish descent and ended up being one of the leaders of the Easter uprising in 1916, which was the beginning of the events that led to the Uh, Irish War of Independence uh, where Britain lost most of its first colony Um, and also there was that then led on to the uh, Irish uh, Civil War between those who wanted to accept or reject the terms of um, uh, peace from Britain. James Connolly um, was shot and um, injured in that uprising and then he was um he was so badly injured that he was executed sitting on a on a chair um James Connolly wasn't just uh, one of the leaders of that um uprising prior to that he had been a union organizer both in uh in, in Ireland and in America uh he was a revolutionary socialist and that's interesting because the revolutionary socialism part of uh James Connolly doesn't really fit very easily in with Mick Lynch's um politics itself but nonetheless it's just an indication of the um, orientation of Mick Lynch towards uh, his Irish ancestry and obviously a particular part of it. He doesn't, uh, wouldn't uh, be in favour of all things Irish. There are clearly many uh, reactionary parts of the kind of Irish uh, tradition. So he comes from that background. His parents were um, labour supporters, his father was a shop steward. Um, and politics were discussed uh, in the household over the dinner table as he develops and starts um, going out to, to pubs and drinking, you know, much of the conversation and the arguments in the pubs are also about politics. So he has um, a background in having a kind of informal, if you like, political education. He leaves school uh, at 16. He, he doesn't go to university at that stage or college he does, as I say, go to university later on when he's blacklisted and has the uh, the time and the uh, opportunity to do so. Um, and within the household, um, politics are discussed in terms of domestic politics, but also international politics, because around that time there were many, uh, you know, uh, important events in in world history, whether it be the Watergate, you know, tape and the break into the, the democrats headquarters the civil rights movement in america um the general strike in um in france in paris in may 1968 demonstrations against the vietnam war in grosvenor square in london all these kind of things so mick lynch um uh is aware of all this growing up um he's also aware of the situation of the so-called troubles, um, uh, a guerrilla war that was happening in the north of Ireland. So all of that kind of thing is is discussed um, not just because he's Irish and he's got Irish parents, but it's helped by that. and he and more so than his his siblings, um, uh, they develop uh, you know a political inclination of um, political activity. So when Mick Lynch um, gets his first job, he joins a union he's not particularly active at that stage he's you know he's only 16 or 17 um but later on he becomes more active and the union that he was in initially um was uh an electrician's union um, because that was the actual job that he was training to be an apprentice uh electrician or electrician engineer and um uh, that union uh, is expelled from the main Union Federation Britain the, the Trade Union Congress because of its practices and Mick Lynch becomes part of a small group of people who set up a new union um a breakaway union that tries to get back into the trade Union Congress so he's you know not only is he active but he's had to do a lot of work to set up a help set up a new union from scratch and Uh, he's very active. He's essentially one of the key people in London for doing that. And then, as I mentioned earlier, he, when blacklisted, he moves to the Eurostar company, finds that um, the workforce there is not organised. That's the the workforce that are not the train drivers. The train drivers are organised, but everybody else is not organised. And he um, takes the lead in building a branch that ends up having union branch that ends up having about 500 members so he he is active in those things um he's not just active he he leads in many cases so he's developing leadership skills um he starts going to rmt annual conference which again is um something which is uh quite a sort of something that stands out because it's a very small conference only of about 60 people and so you have to be a leading activist to be able to be elected to go there. He then uh, um, uh, stands to uh, be elected to the national executive, which he does, and he, in the after the second attempt, he wins. He also stands, uh, but doesn't, uh, isn't successful in trying to become the president of the union, which is a a lay position. And then, as I mentioned earlier on, he then ends up becoming. Um, uh, the RM well he first of all becomes the deputy, effectively the deputy general secretary. Uh, and then he um becomes the, the general secretary. Both of those are elected posts. And I explained earlier how there are certain accidents of history that allow the opportunity to become those leaders uh to 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 arise. Now, of course, just because there's the opportunity to become the general secretary, or prior to that the deputy general secretary, doesn't mean that. Um, Mick Lynch would have won those posts, That's again goes back to why it is that he has a certain skills and if you like star quality um, and all along the way although not nearly so evident uh, as in the last couple of years you do get certain insights into his um, worldview, his political worldview which is much more than just about um, uh, unions and, and union politics. He makes certain pronouncements about the Labour Party. Um, even though he ceased to be a member of the Labour Party uh, many years ago, he's still very supportive of it, critical of the current leadership. Uh, he was the Corbyn supporter, um, but also is has quite a large amount of disdain for the far revolutionary or radical left, saying that essentially, when um, they stand in elections, it's a waste of time. Um, there really is only one show in town, and that's the Labour Party for for the left at any rate, for the Labour Party, whether you like it or not. So that's the background to his politics. Um, one of the things that makes McLynch stand out is that he supported Brexit, uh, that is, Britain leaving the European Union. Uh, and that might sound uh, relatively strange, uh, but there was a left-wing uh, campaign to leave the European Union called Lexit, that is, Left Exit, when Brexit itself stood for Britain Exit or Exiting. Um, and it it led to a lot of controversy because even though there were good reasons for the left to um, campaign and argue for the leaving of the European Union because it had become dominated by uh, a neoliberal ideology it was still clear to most people that it was the right wing the likes of Nigel Farage and UKIP the UK Independence Party that were making the running on uh, leaving the European Union and therefore I think, and I think this is a fairly uncontroversial point, it was almost impossible to see how there could have been a left-wing exit from the European Union, given that those that initiated the campaign, that dominated the campaign, not just Nigel Farage, but also Boris Johnson and, and Michael Gove, were from the uh, the right wing, not just the kind of moderate right, but the, the radical right, and they dominated it. and That's why um, they were able to tap in to the discontent that did exist, so that there's a there's a controversy, or certainly was at the time, and it will continue for some people that you have somebody like Mick Lynch who supported Brexit. Uh, in fact, one uh, left-wing comedian um, called uh, in a column he wrote about Mick Lynch said that he was a Brexit arse made good. He was an arse for supporting Brexit, but then he was made good by what he did over the the um, of living crisis and so on. That that comedian was Stuart, Stuart Lee. So uh, Mick Lynch's politics are uh, certainly very interesting. As I say, I've characterised them as a social democrat rather than a socialist. He has um, certain things that are uh, uh, might be seen to be idiosyncratic. the, the likes of St James Connolly is, was a is a hero and supporting Brexit. And the last thing I'll touch on in terms of his politics um, is his attitude towards the Labour Party. Um, although he is no longer a member of the Labour Party, he clearly supports the Labour Party as the only credible alternative to the current Conservative Party and government. Um, so that's, you know, that's no, that's nothing unusual there. Most union leaders do that. Um, many unions are affiliated to the Labour Party. The RMT isn't. It used to be, but it left when it supported um, the Scottish Socialist Party. Um, so say that's that's not unusual. But what is unusual about McLynch and some other union leaders is that they are supportive, but critically supportive of the Labour Party and particularly the current leader, Sir Keir Starmer. And what essentially they're doing is saying, we want Labour to win, but we want Labour to win on a more left-wing, a more progressive platform or set of policies than is being offered at the moment. Again, nothing unusual in that. But the rub is that they're doing that without uh, a cat in hell's chance of it coming to pass. And they say the reason for that is that since the end of 2022, the Labour Party led by Keir Starmer has been well ahead in the polls, um, always in excess of double digits, sometimes as high as 25% ahead in the polls. Polls are obviously a snapshot at one particular point in time. What does somebody or a thousand people say about which party they would vote for if an election happened on that day they were asked about it? So it's not um, you know, absolutely certain that Labour will win by that majority. But every poll has shown that, and so it's it's hard to believe that it won't happen. So the problem for McLynch Lynch and others is that they want Keir Starmer to be more left-wing but what Keir Starmer is doing by going to the right, having basically junked all the policies that um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, established, that, that um, strategy by Keir Starmer is proving successful. And there's no reason why he would jeopardise that poll lead by um, developing or uh, implementing, adopting different policies. And that's something that none of the union leaders, Mick Lynch most obviously, have been able to get their heads around. They keep on asking for and pleading with um, Keir Starmer to, to do more, to be more left-wing, but it's falling on deaf ears. And some of them, including Mick Lynch, also goes far as to say that Keir Starmer needs to reveal his, his real self. Well, Keir Starmer has revealed his real self. He is uh, a new Labour um uh, leader of the Labour Party. He's not an old Labour. Um, social democrats Um, and so again you know there's a there's an element of political naivety there the one um, if you like caveat I would I would add to that is that while you can characterize that as being rather naive making that political um, demand or plea it has to be held in the context that there are now uh, no credible left-wing alternatives to the Labour Party it's so it's not as though you can say well Um, it doesn't matter what Labour does, we've got another, you know, um, something that we can support, or if Labour doesn't do this, then it will lose support to a left-wing party. Um, There are many, many left-wing parties uh, in Britain, as there are in Australia, America, or anywhere else, but very, very few of them have any substantial um, popular public support. So you can understand how something that seems naive uh, is still nonetheless the most like realistic thing to say or the realistic option to to follow even if you know in your heart of hearts you know that it won't fly uh uh,
2: uh, on the point i did want to ask you about his views about the current labor government uh the uh, and not the government sorry the labor party and you 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 talked about it and unfortunately it's kind of i guess a universal problem that the labor has more and more shifted towards right-wing policies and the only thing they can probably celebrate is for example there there is the identity politics side of things rather than the um economic side of things which which is probably what a lot of more people the working class people want um um I'm, I'm also so it's in your book you also talk about his his leadership style and that's where you're a little bit critical of him his you 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 your your argument is that uh, his leadership style is a little bit autocratic or authoritarian. Can you talk about this aspect of uh Mick Lynch?
1: yeah um but before I do that mm-hmm. I mean in terms of his leadership um one of the if not the key point that I make in the book is that while Mick Lynch has many leadership attributes um his ability to enthuse and motivate his ability to articulate um a coherent ideology of social democracy his blind spot or weak point uh, in uh, as I argue in the book is his lack of strategic planning and the reason that i uh, make a fist of this point is because the rmt um, knew well that this battle was happening not in terms of the cost of living crisis that obviously was something that was added to the the mix but it knew that the uh, both the conservative and labor parties when in government wanted to modernize the railway industry They wanted to do so by reducing the headcount, changing working practice, all that kind of thing. And so, uh, and the RMT had said it was going to oppose that. Uh, And for various reasons, that battle kept on being deferred. Um, But then with the uh, Conservative government, it decided to actually um, start implementing the changes that it was uh, said that were needed. So that battle, if you like to use a metaphor, was a a train that had been coming down the track for a long, long time. And that was one part of the equation. The other part of the equation was that in previous strikes, the RMT uh, members had taken long periods of strike activity. They'd never been any more than one or one or two days uh, you know, together. So you might have had one day strike in one month. The next month you'd had another one day strike. And the reason that they were taking that kind of form of strike action was that without strike pay, RMT members didn't want to strike more than that because they didn't want to sustain the loss to their income. So you put together the fact that the, the, um, the modernisation was was going to be implemented. And although RMT members were willing to strike, they were only willing to do so in a limited way. My argument is that the way to square that circle is to is for the RMT to have developed a, a national strike fund. So that essentially, it could um, not pay its members to be on strike because it, would, it wouldn't would have enough money to do that. But it could certainly give them strike pay that would ameliorate much of the losses from going on strike. And the second largest union in Britain, the Unite Union, has done something very, very similar. It set up a strike fund uh, over a decade ago. It wasn't particularly much used uh, up until 2022 but has since been used um very heavily um somewhere over the region of 30 million pounds has been spent in the last two years on strike pay so the rmt knew that battle was coming it knew his members were somewhat reticent to go on um you know extended strike actions and it had the resources because as said earlier it has 25 million pounds worth of stocks and shares uh, it could have, um, you know, sold those to build up a fund to to pay for this, and Mick Lynch often said that the strikes were the battle of their lives. They were, you know, sufficiently important. It was kind of make or break for the union. So that's the kind of issue that I think that he's fallen down on, and I think that helps explain why the two settlements that I referred to earlier for Network Rail and the train operating companies, um, have not been the outcomes that, that the RMT itself wanted or anyone else in the union wanted. They, were, they weren't defeats but they certainly weren't victories either. So I think that's uh, an issue of strategic planning which is very important uh, and in my view Mick Lynch falls down on that. In terms of his wider um, leadership style, um, he, from the testimonies that I took from those who have worked with him or have knowledge of him as RMT members, he does have a tendency to um, be somewhat authoritarian and domineering. So you would contrast that in terms of analysis of leadership styles as being rather less participative, um, rather rather less maybe democratic than uh, some other leadership styles. Now, that's not particularly um, a, a great uh, revelation because many union leaders have... Um, you know, run their unions, even though they are formally democratic organisations, they have run their unions uh, with with rods of iron. Um, and there are certain um, characterisations of of unions um, which are more or less democratic, depending on the leadership style. So it's not unusual for that to happen in a union. What is probably unusual is that you've got somebody who many people know and probably would somehow infer that he wasn't quite like that from what they see of him uh, on television or in, or the radio because he, he presents a kind of manner manner that isn't necessarily compatible with that. So there's, to the to that extent there is a Mick Lynch, the public see and then there's another kind of Mick Lynch which um, the activists and other officers of the union would see. And uh, what he's done um, in in terms of that leadership style is that once um, his opponents were defeated in the union, Um, over the conception of how the union should run. Mick Lynch's uh, conception is that the union uh, essentially should be run by its full-time officers. So those officers are elected by the members, but once the members elect the officers, the officers are there to run the union. That's his conception of the union. The uh, faction that he defeated had another conception of the union, which was that the national executive members, who are all working um, railway workers, but are essentially seconded for three years at a time to do the do the the national executive union jobs. They should be running the union. So there was a big battle over that, which is why uh, Mick Lynch's predecessor Mick Cash um, left the union as as general secretary. So he, um if you like, Mick Lynch became king of the castle after defeating those opponents. And um, certainly from what I was able to get from from testimony within uh, the Union, that situation has more or less uh, continued. That's not to say that Mick Lynch um, always gets his way. There were instances where Mick Lynch was overruled by his national executive. Uh, In early January 2023, Mick Lynch said there would be no more strikes. Um, That clearly... Wasn't the case because uh, there were strikes in both disputes after that point, so he was overruled by his executive. And at one point, Mick Lynch also um, engaged in what what I call in the book um, a form of sharp power, which is there. Are, there's things like soft power, hard power, sharp power. Sharp power is, um, if you like, being rather economical with the truth. Um, engaging in forms of manipulation, there was an instance where Mick Lynch um, uh, said that the um, train operating companies uh, imposed a no-strike agreement, uh, or put forward a no-strike agreement, rather, in the the draft agreement that uh, they wanted the RMT to sign in order to end that particular dispute. Now, Mick Lynch, as I say, he argued that the, the employers had imposed that um, the evidence is contrary to that that um essentially that no strike agreement was in there from the first draft it was in the second draft it was not somehow um by magic or or whatever process imposed in the third draft so that reflects the fact that I think there was a revolt against that um, essentially that no strike agreement being in the uh, the agreement by the national executive so another example of where he was overturned but also, had to engage in um, uh, rather sharp practices to get to get himself out of that hole so that that gives you some indication of um, he's a canny operator, he's a, a a well-versed operator, and he's usually a successful operator. and the final thing I could say about his uh, his um, leadership style is that compared to his predecessor like Bob Crow, Mick Lynch is much more a negotiator as a, as a union leader than he is a mobilizer that's not to say that he's not capable of going out and uh geeing up the members and all that sort of thing but in his own words he sees his greatest skills lying in being able to negotiate a deal um that is to say he sees negotiation as a more of an art than a skill almost he elevates it to that level and he believes that he has the skills developed over time to basically um negotiate deals and to some extent he's been proven right in that because um the deals that were done were accepted ultimately by the members even though uh, i don't think they did with uh, did so with much enthusiasm um
2: uh, one final question i have uh, which you sort of alluded to at the beginning of the interview so i i used to be in academia and i've studied a lot about the history of socialism marxism you know critical theory but i feel that when in academia people are in their own ivory tower things they read, the things they talk about. There's no way you can convey that that to, to the ordinary working class people. And uh, and at the beginning, when you were talking about the idea of a working class hero, and you said that many people might have forgotten about that concept simply because, well, unions have been, unfortunately, undermined and disempowered. What what lessons do you think, Mick Lynch's style of leadership, his... Um, his ability to either negotiate or, more importantly, to mobilize people. What what lessons do you think it might have for 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 the current left, uh, uh, either in England or Australia or America or in, anywhere, in terms of you know being able? Because I've talked to a lot of people and they say that the left needs to go back to to being able to mobilize and socialize socialize more with with the working class people. So what lessons do you think he's he the phenomenon of Mick Lynch has for the left today?
1: Uh, I think the overriding lesson that we can, or conclusion that we can take away from, you know, studying Mick Mick Lynch is that um, at the moment we do need leaders like Mick Lynch in terms of people who are capable of having a coherent, uh, progressive left-wing ideology that cuts against the, you know, the dominant um, neoliberal ideology that, that kind of rules the world. So we need that, but there are many people that can offer that. We need people who are um, very well versed in terms of being able to put an argument under pressure, particularly you know, in uh in, when they're under the public gaze or the media gaze. Um so that's a, that's it's not just the argument or it's not just the argument that is to be made, it's who also is able to make that argument. Now again, there are many people on the left who have that skill. Um, in colloquial terms, the gift of the gab. They they can, um, through-force of personality, they can come across as being very convincing, almost inspiring. But um, what most of those people that have the arguments and the ability to put the argument, what they don't have is the opportunity to to really have a mass audience for what they're saying and what they're doing. And Mick Lynch uh, clearly did at that time. Now, this is where the kind of... um, tension, if you like, between individuals as active agents and the kind of environment they operate in has to be borne in mind. You have a kind of dynamic tension between the two. And Mick Lynch, because of things I've explained, he ended up being General Secretary of the RMT Union at a particular point of time. He then was availed of the opportunity to make the argument in a way that uh, came across as convincing. So he was making the argument at a time that the RMT was, was fighting back by striking. He was also making the argument at the time when the cost of living crisis was happening. And because of the absence of radical voices, you know, the Labour Party wasn't doing this. And that's why people said at the time that they wished that Mick Lynch was leader of the Labour Party and not Keir Starmer. He was able to do all those things. Now, two years on from, uh, or getting on towards two years on from summer of 2024, sorry, 2022, now that we're in 2024, um, it's a more difficult situation. Um, certainly in Britain, we're in the run-up to an election, and therefore there are certain pressures on people to, if you like, not rope the boat, don't do anything that will jeopardise Labour's chances of winning. But the cost of living crisis seems to be easing somewhat. It doesn't mean there's not still massive social inequality, there is. But that um, spur to action that, that happened in the summer of 2022 does seem to be easing a little, certainly in terms of the number of strikes that are going on in Britain. So, if you're to say, what are the lessons of 2022, or Mick Lynch when he was at height of notoriety in 2022, as, if you like, social scientists, we have to be aware that we cannot um, transpose something, you know, the lessons of something from 2022, even only two years later in 2024, we must take cognizance of the changes, um, while at the same time trying to, if you like, see the more fundamental, um, more perennial lessons that can be learned. So what I would say is if we want a kind of single takeaway from um, McLynch, is that the left can provide leadership to mass struggles and be part of mass struggles at certain points in time. But it has to be, if you like, credible at the point when those mass struggles erupt. The left cannot just suddenly present itself as saying, well, we've always said this and we've got the best solutions and so on, and therefore you should just believe us. It cannot do that. It must build up the credibility and implant itself with roots over the years that people know who the left are at the point when there is a crisis and they present a different um, solution to the crisis compared to the you know the, the austerity that the neoliberals have have um have imposed on us. So I think that's the the kind of single biggest takeaway. It takes a lot of work over many many years. You must be able to take advantage of the opportunity when it presents itself. Um. Now the one I suppose the uh other issue that Mick Lynch has faced. I've alluded to it before, but in a more specific terms. In August 2022, an organisation called Enough is, is Enough was set up. And it was the RMT, the Communication Workers Union, the CWU union and some others. They tried to set up kind of left wing campaigning pressure group, which was a great step forward at the time. But um, within a matter of months, that organization, which had between three quarters of a million and a million people signed up to it in terms of you know, giving their details to it. It wasn't a membership organization, but it was like you could support it. In a matter of months that organisation started to become almost defunct because, unfortunately, it was too tied up to the um, the ongoing uh, course of the disputes of those two unions, the RMT and the CWU, but it did show the potential there. So the other more minor lesson I think I would suggest from the what's happened over the last couple of years is that we do need a new political form of organisation, we do need a new maybe Not a political party, but we do need something new that is uh, of a mass scale, that is credible, uh, that is campaigning on the, the kind of basic material grievances that people have. Because certainly the Labour Party isn't doing it, and therefore there is, if you use the term, a gap in the market. Um, whether that can be filled uh, so easily now as it might have done in 2022, um, you know, is a question which um, we can pick over. But I think um, some of the uh, fertile ground that existed in 2022 is, is not quite so good as it as it is now in 2024. Professor
2: uh, Gregor Gale, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk to us about your uh, wonderful book. The book is called uh, Mick Lynch, Making of a Working Class Hero, published in January 2024 by Manchester University Press. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.